From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jamal. And this is the VinePair podcast, Friday edition. Zach, we are approaching the end of su- the unofficial end of summer. Mm-hmm. It's a little sad for me. I mean, actually, yeah. I'm quite happy about it. I don't like the summer. <laughs> I was going to say, you are on record as being a fall person. <laughs> I am a fall person. It's just too hot. I mean, I imagine it would be different for me if I lived somewhere else. But yeah. New York in the summer is like not ideal for me. Yes, I recall it being, especially the tail end of summer in particular, being quite miserable. It's a little swampy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah swampy and uh, the inescapable smell of rotting garbage. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a year-round thing. I feel like you don't get it. It's not so bad in the winter. It's heightened. No covers it. It is heightened in the heat. Yes, yes, it's true. Um, Anyway, so uh, what have you been reading? Yeah, so there was a piece on the site recently that just right up my alley, a topic that I think we've talked about on the pod a couple times. In fact, the pod is actually referenced in the piece. And uh, I just love to read about this because it's so interesting to me. And that was Evan Rail's piece, uh, Airlines Are Finally Getting Serious About Their Flight Spirits and RTDs. Uh, just a, a nice kind of overview of what all's going on. You know, Evan talks to a few different producers, some airlines who are, you know, kind of how they are looking at kind of adding this element. And I, it just makes me think, and it reminds me, you know, there was this, uh, from what I understand, you know, I'm a little too young to have been drinking on airplanes during yeah. the sort of first golden age of airline uh, drinking, you know, when you could get like real cocktails and stuff and not just and there in were bars. first class. Yeah. Well, th- I mean, my dad tells a story that I think I've even maybe relayed on the podcast before when we talked about this topic, but of on a being on a, a flight from uh, Boston to, I think, well, he was flying to Kenya. And so for a, for a work trip uh, and that's a big flight. You know, yeah. I don't know. If, I can't recall if it was a direct flight or he was flying probably somewhere not. else. And then I, I, I probably not probably flew <laughs> somewhere else and then on, but it was a long, you know, uh, transatlantic flight. And you know, yeah, there was a bar that you could walk up to and get a cocktail. And I just, the thought of that has always been so astonishing to me as just like a, this kind of, it seems decadent, yet it was sure. kind of commonplace. I mean, not like, you know, I don't mean that it was on every flight, obviously not, but like it wasn't something that now is only in the like ultra elite class where you're paying, you know, $10,000 for a ticket or something. So it, it, obviously we're not going back to that in economy (laughs) but (laughs) it is nice to see that on a lot of airlines these days you can get there's just much better options for drinking and it it never made a lot of sense to me that that airlines so neglected that element of their in-flight service you know because if nothing else it's a it's a revenue stream maybe not an enormous one but it's still you know people will in you know in the area parts of the plane where you're not getting free drinks will pay for them and will probably gladly pay a couple dollars more for something that's meaningfully better than just the sort of, you know, airline bottle and kind of innocuous mixer that was what your options were if you wanted a mixed drink such as it is on a plane. So enjoyed that piece. How about you? Yeah, I um, love that piece as well. Uh, Another piece that we published this week was from Josh Bernstein about celebrity beers and kind of why we don't see as many as we do in spirits or the wine space and kind of the explores the challenges um, for those types of um, beers because there are celebrity beers out there. And I think um, one of the main points is kind of that you need, as with spirits and wine and other uh, alcoholic beverages, um, when you have a celebrity attached to them, 
you really only see success if there's true investment from that person mm-hmm. in the product. And, you know, I, I, keep, I keep thinking of um, Travis Scott's cact- cacti, mm-hmm. right? And how that just like there was so much hype around it. He seemed really invested in it. And as soon as it launched, it was just like it just fell so flat. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought this piece was really interesting because it is kind of curious that, you know, we just see so many celebrity spirits and so many celebrity wines out there. Um, why don't we see more beers? I think there's two reasons. I think one is that obviously in, in modern culture, there are a huge range of what we would consider celebrity. And maybe there are specific individuals or parts of the sort of celebrity culture where a beer tie in makes a certain kind of sense. Yeah. But if you think about like a lot of, you know, what is what Joshua references in the piece as sort of celebrity brands that are succeeding or at least are prominent, they, they are spirits, you know, largely tequila, but not exclusively, or wine, both of which have, I guess, more of a kind of ready connection to a sort of luxury celebrity lifestyle. And not that beer can't have some of that, but beer doesn't have the same kind of cachet in that regard. And I think there's also an element of like with Terramana, right, with The Rock, it's much easier, I think, for that brand to grow, to sell, you know, a million cases or whatever, become an enormous product. And it doesn't, people don't look at it as sort of critically as they would. I mean, selling an equivalent volume of beer means you're basically one of the biggest beer brands in the country. And that, you know, that people just relate differently to that. Um, you know, I think you can see it done. There's a few in the piece. I think about the like, I guess it was more of a collaboration than a full on like brand launched with the celebrity. But like if you think about like um, there was a collab between the wrestler Steve Austin and I think yes. El Segundo Brewing. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. Like drink literally drinking beer was a part of, of like Steve Austin's persona. So it like fits hand in glove. And I think there's an element where with a lot of other celebrities, it might not. It might seem like, do you, is this really the thing you're passionate about? People might right. be a little more skeptical of that. And then on the craft side, I just don't think the scale of it is is makes sense for celebrities, right? If you're looking at it as sort of a business venture, yeah, you exactly. just can't sell enough beer for it to make sense. Yeah. Unless you're yeah. deeply passionate. And those few examples that we see, I think, are examples of that. But it's just a harder business to make, you know, to grow a brand from zero to a million cases or the beer equivalent in a few years. It's just, I don't know how you would do that. Yeah, I also just think it's like it's really hard to stand out, yeah. right? And just this like absolute sea of beer available today. Like, yeah, maybe you can try a six pack, um, but how how do you get people to con- have that uh, really serious brand loyalty to your celebrity beer? I just I feel like it's much more challenging there than it is with you know something something like a bottle of tequila where that's just these things are at higher price points and it, it just makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I thought that piece was really interesting as well. And give it a read if you haven't already. Um, for today's conversation, I wanted to talk about the seasonal creep. Mm-hmm. Not a person. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, in the drink space specifically, we have seen over the last few years things like pumpkin spice lattes and pumpkin beers launching earlier and earlier. And um, I think those are probably the prime examples of this. But, you know, it's 
it's as we record this, it's still August and these a lot of these things have launched already. And we wanted to talk about, you know, if this is a good thing for these products. Like, is it really great that you can get a pumpkin spice latte in August and who really want it seems it seems like people go apeshit for these things anyway. So mm-hmm. sure. But yeah, kind of a, a more general look at if this is good for fall specific products. What do you think, Zach? Well, I think it's really an interesting question on two fronts. There's the question, I think, of is it good for any individual brand to sort of compete in this seasonal creep arms race to like rush to get product on the shelf as soon as possible? Right. And then I think there's the other question of like, is it good for the category as a whole? So from the perspective of an individual brand, I have to wonder if if there's just sort of a like... It's inevitable because what I think the reason you and I, I think are generally not happy about this is that it's very easy to get burned out on these seasonal specialty products before the season the even season. Really arrives. Yeah. And, you know, we were in Slack discussing the like, you know, by the time you get to even the what would to me sort of be the real beginning of quote unquote pumpkin season, like closer to Halloween, you've probably tapped yourself out on your PSLs and your pumpkin beers and stuff like that, even if you're a big fan. And it's kind of a bummer to reach late October and be like, I'm sick of this pumpkin shit. What do you got next? Yeah. But I also recognize that if the window for sales is moving ever earlier, asking individual brands to step back and be like, we're not releasing our pumpkin beer until October 15th is probably a losing proposition for them unless maybe they're so entrenched in the space that they have cachet but you know starbucks part of the reason they probably released the pumpkin spice latte in august now is because they know that if they're not out there with it all of the other whether they're chains or individual uh coffee shops etc are going to satisfy what appears to be a market demand because there are a lot of people like you who reach mid-august and are like when the fuck does fall get here (laughs) like i'm done with this shit and (laughs) even if it's 90 degrees out maybe that pumpkin spice latte or that pumpkin beer kind of helps you convince you that fall is coming uh and depending on where you are in the country fall may feel more imminent it's very imminent here in seattle it's like gray and kind of rainy so you know we're we're full on into fall here it seems hmm. so on the brand side i think it's kind of hard to for me to wag my finger too much at individual brands for you know not sort of participating in the seasonal creep but i do think it probably is unfortunately bad for the categories because again part of the reason why i think we love some of these products is when they really do match the vibes, right? And the reason why these are seasonal products, this is like very dumb, but is because they fit a season. And when you divorce them from that season, even if it's just a month or two, they don't hit the same, I don't think. Yeah, but also, I don't know, I think about this. So, so with the Starbucks thing specifically, I just feel like they have such a I hadn't considered it from a competition standpoint because I feel they just have such a lock on the PSL. Like I'm sure Duncan has a competitive drink, but I yeah, I just I feel like Starbucks could easily I guess it's business that they're missing out on cuz people really clamor for it. Um from a beer point of view though, like I know you can get pumpkin year round, but it must be a pain in the ass for beer producers and breweries to start tackling pumpkin beers earlier and earlier when, you know, they have other things, other beers that they'd rather brew that are more seasonally appropriate. 
right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's kind of a pain in the ass to be like, okay, well, people are demanding it and we're leaving business on the table or money on the table, rather, uh, if we don't start brewing our pumpkin beer in August. But <laughs> aren't there other things that, they, that they'd want to be pursuing at that time? Well, and I think for you and me with beer in particular, one of the sad parts of this is that it sort of tramples on what I think can be a really exciting season, right? I mean, we think about like the joys of an, of the various Oktoberfest beers. Yeah. Obviously, I've you know waxed rhapsodic on the pot about fresh hot beers here in the Northwest. Like, there are a lot of cool, exciting beer styles that are really good fits for this end of summer, beginning of autumn season. And yet in the rush to get the, you know, the big heavy hitter on the, on the shelf. Yeah. I think there is some, you know, whether those beer, other beers are not being produced at all or made in smaller quantities or just not getting the attention they deserve. It's like, it does feel unfortunate to jump ahead. And maybe in the coffee world, there isn't the equivalent of your late summer, early fall latte flavor that makes sense i don't really know then not gonna have a fresh hop latte i don't think um, although now i'm mildly curious but anyhow, that's just my own <laughs> sick <gross>. fascination <laughs> um, i do think that that yeah I, I know there are i know there are breweries that you know in the past at least have actively taken themselves out of the pumpkin beer game yeah Yep. You know, for a variety of reasons, either the producers don't like the style or they feel too confined by it or just it's too competitive in a way. And why not make something that will appeal to the non pumpkin beer lover and maybe you capture more market share. But I I think, yeah, it's just like it, the sad thing, as I think we said before, is like reaching the true season and being like, yeah, I'm sick of this. <laughs> That's just a sad place to be. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's like kind of a a problem that's because of consumers. Like, it's our fault, right, as drinkers, that, that we've gotten to this point. That's my impression. <laughs> yeah, I don't think breweries are like, man, we got to get this pumpkin beer cranked up. I mean, it's 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 a response to demand, obviously. Yeah. And like like we said, there's sort of a an advantage to being early to the market because for the kind of person who's like counting down the days until the pumpkin-themed stuff arrives or till the, you know, whatever, quote-unquote, spooky season, which don't get me started, uh, <laughs> there's an audience that's that's clamoring for the signs of fall right many people not just joanna find fall to be their favorite season yes and people will spend good money for things that make them feel like it's fall regardless of what the thermometer says etc so yes it's it's a i think it's largely a consumer driven trend i just like to me the question is you know i don't think there's any unfortunately i don't think there's a lot of putting the genie back in the bottle on this one because of how much seeming demand there is. And again, the problem of sort of unilateral disarmament isn't going to work for any of these brands, I don't <laughs> think. But I do think that like the question that I have for you, Joanna, is sort of, are there ways that you as a person who does enjoy these products can, I don't know, restrain yourself <laughs> and maybe hold off on some of the, the, the pumpkin themed things or pumpkin flavored things. And, you know, do you think that there are, you know, I mentioned a few of them, but maybe what are some other kind of like things that would be a good fit for this sort of weird shoulder season? I don't think I've ever had a pumpkin spice latte in my life. Oh, okay. And 
I, I don't know. Part of me is just I'm 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 looking at a we published a piece a few weeks ago about uh, Starbucks new fall menu and what what else they've uh, they've added to it and there are a lot of like iced pumpkin drinks now which I just think is like so ridiculous. It really is. It is a really like a solution in search of a problem. Yeah, like make this stuff available year round. Then, you know, I feel like it would perform whatever sell really well. And uh, yeah, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Okay, I want to interrogate that because I'm not sure I agree. You don't think that people would drink this stuff all year round? Oh, I mean, I'm sure to some extent they would. But I think it's like it's like the Shamrock Shake thing, right? Like the reason why the Shamrock <laughs> Shake is successful when McDonald's brings it back is because it's like a seasonal thing. It's a sure. limited time thing. People are like, ooh, it's spring-ish, whatever. I can only get this now. Yeah. And yeah. I think if you, if you, I think a lot of these products, I mean, it's the same reason why they don't offer all the, you know, like holiday theme shit year round because like it drives demand. I, I don't think it's that people wouldn't buy a white peppermint mocha or whatever in <laughs> June if it were on the menu. Obviously, some people would, but I think there is an artificial scarcity being created here that, yeah, and yeah. that works in the, to the benefit of Starbucks and it works to the benefit of everyone. I mean, beer's a little different because I think, the product is generally more fragile. You can't just be brewing all the beers you yeah. might brew in a year all the time. It's just impossible to Not do possible. that. And you yeah. kind of have to, you know, whether it's from a just a tank space perspective or obviously a perishability perspective or just whatever, you know, tap handle perspective, you can't have all of your seasonal beers available all the time. That is, I guess, what defines the seasonal releases versus the kind of like core releases or whatever. But I also think that we like these especially I feel like it's with fall and maybe to some extent with spring where these sort of transitional seasons there, we as people crave these things that signify, you know, the end of summer and the beginning of, you know, the slow horrifying descent into winter. And <laughs> similarly, the, you know, the, anything that signifies the emergence from that horrible place. And I am a person who does enjoy winter actually, but you know, I get it. It's not for everyone. In any case, I think that, there, there are reasons why we want these things to be at least roughly tethered to the season. But I do think that it is getting more and more preposterous to be thinking about, yeah, like, why why is any is anyone really desperate for pumpkin spice cold drinks like that? That are not beer. I mean, like coffee drinks. It just feels, yeah, very antithetical to the whole reason why they became popular in the first place. Yeah, maybe, maybe my beef is really with just like kind of pumpkin itself. Because I when I'm, you know, you asked what types of drinks we could explore during this transitional period. And I'm trying to think, um, you know, I think obviously pear, apple, like those types of flavors that signify fall in a less, I don't know, pumpkin-y way. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, that feels less offensive to me than pumpkin. And as do things like cranberry... I don't know, the kind of stone fruits that you can still... I, I'm also, this is very New York-based, right? Like, what sure. what's available here. Yeah, so so things where you kind of start getting some of the warmth in, but still has the, the sweetness and the brightness of the fruit. Where pumpkin on its own, like true pumpkin things are not, you know... True pumpkin, sorry, is not very sweet. It's very savory. So, yeah. um... Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of, you know, maybe like it, maybe this should be an official cider season. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Well, you know, I'm a 
I'm a moderate cider enthusiast. So I, I mean, I, look, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about a calendar, if you will, for drinking that is way more uh, <laughs> sp- not specialized, isn't it? segmented than just four seasons. So I think there are a lot of great seasons for drinking, and, and that can include individual products, whole categories, flavors, etc. And I think, again, you know, the cool thing is for people who do feel that way, there are a lot of things out there that you can access, whether seasonally or year round, that that I think are really good touchstones for the get point of time. You know, this is coming out on September 1st. So, you know, it's a, you know, calendar transition. It's not necessarily a weather transition for most places, but, you know, it signifies something. Obviously, we're coming up on Labor Day weekend. I do think that there is there is appetite and interest for some people in that sort of proverbial turning of the calendar into fall. And products that satisfy that demand are going to have an audience. And does that all have to be pumpkin? Probably not. Would the pumpkin stuff maybe be better and more enjoyable a month later? Probably. (laughs) But it's true that there isn't another obvious, like here is a signifier of fall because as noted, like this is not really fall. Like, we're not really there yet most places. It's still both calendrically and, you know, atmospherically in a lot of places, still pretty fucking summery. And so I do think that that is one of these areas where you just kind of look at, like, something like a national landscape, if to say nothing of an international landscape, and you go like, well... It's true that in some certain parts of the north of the north of this country, it might be starting to feel a little fallish from time to time. But it's also like swelteringly hot in hurricane season in other parts of the country. And so, like, it's hard to make a sweeping statement about what flavors people should be in the mood for. Uh, not that that will stop us or people who produce things. We will all do it anyhow. Yeah. But yeah, I just I, I think I, I think I feel like maybe like you there is a time and a place for the pumpkin stuff and I'm not a hater the way Adam is. Yeah. But I'm also not counting down the days. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Maybe the rule should be no pumpkin before Labor Day. (laughs) Yeah. No white after Labor Day and no pumpkin before. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. I also think this would be, you know, obviously this is so, so, like you just said, like such an American thing. Mm -hmm. I think I'm sure the pumpkin spice latte has has uh, reached markets outside of the United States. Um, but I would be really I, interested to explore kind of what those signifiers are in other countries around the world. Um, and if there is kind of an, equi- an equivalent, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess no. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> there's sort of, you know, it would be interesting to uncover the sort of why is pumpkin such a big deal here and I think there are probably a lot of reasons. I mean, Halloween is a bigger deal here than in a lot of places. Obviously, yeah. our Thanksgiving traditions are American inherently. And while other countries do have something similar and certain doesn't always fall at the same time of year and has different sort of uh, different background. And, you know, I think like there there's another element of it, too, which is like so many of the progenitors of the pumpkin thing whether it's the pumpkin spice latte or just the pumpkin beer are american and so we have a a deeper resonance with it i think than maybe you know even other markets that share a lot of commonalities with america in other ways yeah yep tell us what you think about the seasonal creep do you like it do you count down the days for your pumpkin spice latte or uh can can you wait uh podcast at vinepair.com and zach 
Have a wonderful weekend and Labor Day holiday. And I'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.